Good evening, church. Third John 2, beloved, I pray that in all aspects or respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. We're talking about emotionally healthy. And last week, we looked at the topic of being happy. Being happy. The sermon title was, Is Happy Healthy? But I came up with a better one that I'd like to I'm going to begin to use. It's called the happiness heresy. Because there's a falsehood in this idea that somehow that Jesus coming, his death and resurrection and the life of redemption was to make us happy. That really was not at all what Jesus coming was really all about. And we get worried about being happy enough. We talked about this last week. And it's interesting that someone actually sent me an article that they had clipped decades ago from an anonymous author. And I quote, in the 60s or 70s, we started expecting rather to be happy and changed our lives. We left town, we left families, we switched jobs. If we weren't and society strained and cracked in the storm. Why? Because we've lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated in a way that life is overrated. That in a way, life is overrated. We've lost somehow a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be that solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are among the first generations of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. And the reason that if you don't believe in another higher world, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, then if the world does not give you a good measure of its riches, you despair. Isn't that the truth? It's what I call hijacked hope. That is, the ancients begin to describe hope as the writers of Scripture spoke of hope. Once again, they weren't talking about something for tomorrow or next week. They were invariably speaking about this higher world. They were speaking about eternal things. They were speaking not of the temporary and the temporal, but those things that would last And yet, like Pastor DeHaan so masterfully said on Sunday, if this is it, then let's all just throw off all restraints and become unbridled hedonists. And let's do everything we can. Let's eat everything in sight. Let's figure out how much we can acquire and how much happy we can wring out of this life. And yet, how many of you know that this is yet an eye blink an eye blink in the context of eternity and that which Christ has stored up for those of us that love him and are called according to his purpose. Somebody say amen to that. But we learned last week that many times it's a lack of happiness that brings us into the ever deeper places of God. Many of us actually came into our initial relationship with God, not from a place of plenty, not from a place of happiness, but from a place of pretty deep discontent, did we not? 
And God himself was the author of that discontent to direct our path directly to him. God will use that unhappiness in his hands. God will violate our happy to get us healthy. We talked about that. The same way that as a parent will very happily bring a moment of unhappiness to their children in order to bring them into conformity with the purposes of the house and bring whatever necessary to the moment, be it discipline. Hmm. Hebrews 12 talks about enduring discipline. And then we define the goal. The divine design is it to be really happy or is it to be healthy? You know, I read a book some years back. The name of the book was Tried by Sebastian Junger. And in this book, he's talking about, it's a sociological book about how people gather. What are the sociological norms by which people come together? How are, how are governments formed internally through these associations of people? And he made observation of the World War II bombing of London. Now, just a bit of a history lesson. The Germans, day after day after day, night after night after night, just continued to bombard that city with armament. I don't know if you've ever even seen on the news, but in the past week or so, they, they're continuing to uncover bombs there. Actually closed down, I think, one or two airports in London while they're trying to pull bombs out of the Thames, I believe it is. But I mean, night after night, I mean, just horrendous shelling of this city. And just the psychological effect that it was having on people. And they were estimating something to the point of that there would be like 4 million people that would, that would have chronic neurosis, that would basically have a breakdown under the strain. And what's interesting, as the bombing increased, psychiatric hospital admissions decreased. The very thing that they were anticipating was going to happen, the very opposite happened. As a matter of fact, they only recorded two bomb neuroses a week during that period of time. Suicide rates and depression decreased during that period of time. And you would think, why is that? Two reasons. One is that folks found themselves through crisis thrust together in community or tribes. How many of you know that crisis will do that? I mean, all of a sudden, when crisis hits a place, maybe a natural disaster, what do people invariably do? They don't hunker down in their houses. What happens? They all move outside, and they begin to congregate together. But many times, it's the very crisis that forces people into community. This is exactly what happened in London. And because of this, folks began to do what? Rather than serve one another, they begin to give themselves away. Rather than serve themselves, they begin to serve one another. It's an amazing thing that happens when we get beyond ourselves. We begin to pour out that which we have, be it the love of God, be it what resources that we have. When we begin to give ourselves away, all of a sudden, all of these things that were making us so unhappy, they seem to somehow get pushed to the bottom of the list, don't they? 
Isn't that interesting? Again, Eleanor Roosevelt, that happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct. And so the heresy of happy. But tonight, as we move on in this, I want to look at what I'm entitling the poison of productivity. The poison of productivity. Now, again, the book that we're referencing here is a book by Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And so I'm going to directly take what he identifies as 10 problems. I'm just going to read through them, make a few comments, and then I want to extract two of them specifically and speak to us in detail about those tonight. But let me give you Scazzaro's 10 problems of emotional health or emotional lack thereof. Number one is using God to run from God. Just set that one aside because I'm going to come back to that one. The second problem is ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. How many of you know that God has uniquely given you and I emotions? Now, if you've been around the church for a moment, my wife and I have been around the church for decades now. How many of you heard this, this old adage that we're not led by our feelings? Come on. There we go. And so somewhere it's faith. I mean, if you look at it, it's faith, fact, feeling in that order. It's pretty much what we've been, we've been taught over the years. And so as a result, many times we feel that our, that our emotions are to be what? Suspect. In other words, what I'm feeling is probably illegitimate. But how many of you know that God has given us emotions because we are made in what? God's image. Aren't you glad that God, come on, has emotions? We know from Scripture, God loves, God hates, the Holy, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All of the gamut, the range of emotions that you and I experience, we see God experiencing. The difference is how we respond or relate to emotion. God never reacts from emotion. God proacts from a plan. You and I tend to, as humans, we tend to react from emotions. But it doesn't negate the fact that regardless of what the emotion is, it's legitimate. My wife and I, having been pastors for many years, we see different people respond to grief. And we've heard some, some of the dumbest things we've ever heard in our life. We've heard in people trying to help one, enough, one another through the grief process. I've heard some dumb stuff. I mean, everything about, well, you know, the heaven just needed another angel and they're in a better place. And aren't you? And I mean, we have planned funerals with people. And people, there's like, oh, we just want a worship service and we just want to celebrate Jesus. I said, you might want to consider just for a moment the grief factor. Because you might not be wanting to get your dance on in that particular moment. Now, there might be a handful of people that can do that. But somewhere for us to deny the emotions, continue to push them down, it's a sign somewhere that there's a lack of health that we need to begin to look at. Number three, again, Scazzaro's list, is dying to the wrong things. 
Now, we know that there is in Scripture, it says, a dying to self. We die daily. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we die to who we are. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to die to the authenticity, to the uniqueness that God has wired in each one of us. Do we die to sin? Yes. Do we die to those parts of us that need to be crucified? Yes. We don't tame flesh. We crucify flesh. Scripture says. So yes, we die to those things, but we don't die to the personhood of who God has uniquely wired you and me to be. We need to be careful that we don't die to the wrong things. Number four is denying the past's impact on the present. We have a school of healing in our every nation world. We have a life of freedom here in this church, which again is going to be taught on Saturday. And you know, it'd be wonderful if, as God declares, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. But how many of you know that you and I have things called memories? We have things that imprint our souls, they imprint our emotions, things that happen to us. Many times we these things have more profound impact on our present than we would like to give them credit for. Now, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about some weird Freudian thing that you've got to go back and unearth every unhappy moment that you've ever had as a person. But the percentage of people that have had profound experiences in their past, crisis, abuse, whatever it might be, somewhere these things continue to provide a hook that keep people from running the race that Christ has marked out for them. And there has to be a spiritual exchange. Something has to happen where those influences from the past are broken in our life once and for all. The Bible calls them what? Curses. And there's an answer for that. It's the cross. Cursed is everything that hangs on a tree. He bore our curses, not just our infirmities. They're broken. Aren't you glad of that? Tonight. But they have to be identified. One of my mentors in the faith actually believed that because of the cross, that once a believer had come into the saving knowledge of Christ, that everything in the past was completely negated. Now, it's a great theological position. It's a great theory. But how many of you know that in reality, many times we still, don't, we still haven't reckoned the past completely dead in our present. Number five, dividing our lives into secular and sacred compartments. And this is a further assault, I believe, in our authenticity as we feel the need to be different people in different settings. Now, when Paul wrote, he was all things to all men, I don't believe that was some type of Christian psychosis or schizophrenia. Hello? So you got to figure out, well, when I'm this group of people, I can tell these jokes. And when I'm with this group of people, I can use this language. And now I'm with the church people, so I can't use that word anymore. And the next thing you know, we don't know who we are. And so we have a compartmentalized. We've got our secular self and we've got our sacred self. Can you imagine the confusion that this eventually begins to bring upon us? As we're trying to figure, where am I, who are these people, and who am I supposed to be right now? According to Gallup polls, one of the greatest scandals of our day is that, quote, 
evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Now, if you've heard me say anything from this pulpit, you've heard me bemoan the church being something and something completely different to the culture. Again, not an improved version of itself, but something completely holy and totally separate, set apart. Statistics are devastating, though. Church members divorce their spouses as often as their secular neighbors. Church members beat their wives as often as their neighbors. Church members' giving patterns indicate that they're almost as materialistic as non-Christians. And of the higher commitment evangelicals, 26% think premarital sex is acceptable by 46% of lower commitment evangelicals believe it to be okay. Ron Sider, in a book entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, says this, whether the issue is marriage and sexuality or money and care for the poor, evangelicals today are living scandalously unbiblical lives. And the data suggests that in many crucial areas, evangelicals are not living any differently from their unbelieving neighbors. How many of you know that God is looking for the church, for you and me, to live and be different. Not a secular and sacred version, but one man in Christ. Doing for God, number six, instead of being with God. I'll get to that in a moment. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. You know, we are, in our little part of Christendom, I mean, we love to blame everything on something spiritual. Every conflict we have is something pushing back at us from the heavenlies. Some demon, some principality, something. But how many of you know that just by the very nature of being in this world, how many of you know that we're going to have conflict? Hello? How many of you know you can look in the mirror in the morning and you can be at conflict with yourself? I mean, just, just, just read a little Romans 7 for a moment. You see a man at conflict with himself. And so, but part of being emotionally unhealthy is when we don't deal with conflict in a healthy way. That everything has to be some woo-woo something going on out here. I, I jokingly tell the story of my first few weeks as a Christian. Getting hold of this wonderful teaching tape series on demons. It was a great, it was great. The problem was I had never had any teaching on justification, sanctification, the cross, accountability. And so it was wonderful. Everything was a demon. I didn't do anything wrong. I was perfect. But I was binding and rebuking and loosening everything. I rebuke you, spirit of anger. I rebuke you, spirit. I mean, I was rebuking everything. And completely unchanged. Because I had spiritualized conflict. Like a husband and wife getting into, you know, having, you know, intense fellowship. Oh, there's a spirit of strife in this household. No, honey, you're just a jerk. So we need to, so this is another sign of many times that we're emotionally unhealthy is when we can't deal with conflict without trying to spiritualize it every time that it comes up. Number eight, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure. 
Oh, I don't want anybody to see this. But how many of you know that it's brokenness, weakness, and failure? Which doesn't mark the end of a thing, it usually marks the beginning. You see, the enemy wants to tell us when we come to these moments that somehow you're done, you failed, you're broken, you're never going to change. I don't know about for you, but most of the time it's the acknowledgement of the failure, of the brokenness, of the weakness. Most of the time that is the green light and the invitation for the Holy Spirit to come live through my life. Most of the time, it is the indication I've been trying to do it myself that God has stepped back and removed his grace for a moment so I could be the man and let me run into the trees. And then finally, when you're sitting there and you're like, God says, are you ready now? It's amazing. Famous last words. Watch this. Usually, if you're the group of guys, it's going to mean a trip to the emergency room next. Do you understand what I'm saying? Watch this. But we do it with God all the time. God says, I am watching this. And it's only when we get to the end of ourselves many times that we realize it's God's mercy and grace. It's a release of his power. And could I submit to you the reason that most Christians never appropriate The real life of the Spirit and the power of God is that they're emotionally so fragile and so unhealthy that they can't admit, I'm jacked up. I'm a failure. I'm weak in this area. I can't do this. Oh, yeah, but how about that scripture that says, I can do all things? Read the rest of the passage. Through Christ who lives in me. Do you realize that the entire opinion of Pauline theology is on the basis of how we allow the Spirit of Christ to embolden and empower us? It's not about us doing the best best we can and we get to the end. It's well done, good and faithful servant. You, You made it. Woo! We weren't sure for a moment. No. That's not how it's gonna go down. It's gonna go down like, Jesus, I am sure glad you did this through me because I would have never gotten here any other way. Why? Because there's not to be any flesh getting any credit in a moment like that. And yet, why is it then that we want flesh to get credit now? I mean, you want a foreshadowing of heaven? Go ahead and give up now, please. Do it now. Acknowledge what you're not now. Oh, brother, but I've read power of positive thinking and you know brother I'm, I'm confessing it and I'm going to fake it till I make it and I'm going to yeah keep on with that I'd lots rather just say I'm not all that and we just kind of get there quick amen number nine living without limits you know somehow we think we can just do and go and give and some of us begin to adopt this bit of a messianic complex that somehow it's all going to be done in and through us, even at our own detriment of our own health. Parker Palmer said this, self-care is never a selfish act. 
is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have. The gift I was put on earth to offer others. And any time we can listen to true self and give it to the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. You know, it's amazing to me when I see the frantic activity of so many Christians about how much that we tend to take on that, you know, if, 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 well, if I don't do it, When we hear the accomplishments or even the testimonies that come from other people, what is our immediate response? Is it to rejoice with them or is it to say, I should be doing that? Oh, my goodness. Is it, oh, my, I'm not, I'm, oh, I'm not doing my part. He's doing all this. She's doing all that. She's running a soup kitchen out of a garage, and she works two jobs, and, you know, she runs the nursery at church, and she does mission. I mean, and I just, I can barely just get my laundry done. And we begin then to compare ourselves one to the next. Hmm. And, you know, we really despise limits. Could we just, we're kind of getting real here for a moment, but... We all hate limits. Somewhere there's something in us that's, that's wired, particularly those of us who are Americans, that somehow, somehow we have no restraints and no limits on us whatsoever. If you can think it, come on. If you can dream it, it can be yours. How many of you know what total hooey that is? And yet, that same lie is pervasive in the church today. That if you can see it, if you can declare it, it can be yours. Do you know how many shipwrecked believers there are out there who have built on that shifting sand? Oh, my goodness. It's tragic. And we, and we hate limits. Even when they are God-ordained limits that God has placed on our life. The Bible speaks of it as measure. Romans 12, to each has been given a measure of spiritual gifts. Guess what? Each of you have been given a measure. Not only of spiritual gifting, you've been given a measure of your, quote, natural gifts. Every one of you have been given a measure of how many minutes and seconds that your body is going to respirate. You're going to die of something. Your body is going to stop. God has ordained that to happen. He's given you a measure of how long your life is going to be on this planet. He's given us a measure of, 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 of spiritual gifting. He's given us a measure emotionally of what we can carry. And he's given us warning lights on the, like on the dash of your car. Things begin to happen in our body. Things begin to break down in our soul. And many times we think we can just continue to just, we're just going to motor through it. I'm just going to pray more. I'm going to believe more. I'm going to read my Bible more. Here I go. You keep that up. 
You keep pushing your engine like that in your car, and your car is eventually going to say, we're done. We're done. You're walking now. (laughs) And yet we do that to ourselves physically and emotionally all the time. But we've developed, if you wish, almost a theology that just says, I should be able to overcome all of that. When could I submit to you that perhaps they are the very limiters that God has placed on each one of us to keep us what? Healthy. Hmm. And then number 10, judging other people's spiritual journey. I need to compare myself to you. I mean, if, you can, if you can speak in tongues for 30 seconds, I can go a full minute. I mean, we can do some of the strangest things. Out of our own lack of health and our own insecurity, it's just amazing to me. One of the desert fathers said this, The monk must die to his neighbor and never judge him at all in any way whatsoever. If you're occupied with your own faults, you have no time to see those of your neighbor. And you know, it's interesting that it's, Scripture talks a little bit about the, the speck. Come on. And the what? The beam or the log. And you see, part of the sign that we're emotional and healthy is our need to be able to judge and assess someone else's spirituality. Well, you know what, they, they don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit the way we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and they don't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, maybe not. But you know what? They're seeing disciples made, and they're planting churches, and they're doing a whole lot of amazing things. They may not accredit the Holy Spirit the same way you and I do as Charismatics or Pentecostals, but guess what? They love Jesus, and Jesus is using them in profound ways. And so these are schizeros, if you wish. These are, these are his 10 signs of places of emotional, being emotionally unhealthy. And so that was a big introduction now that I'm out of time to a message that will obviously be pushed to next week. So all I can do is just give you the commercial for it called The Poison of Productivity. Let me ask you a question, and I'll just stop with this. Do you feel better about yourself when you're busy? Do you feel better about yourself? Do you feel like that your worth is higher? Because is it based on your function? or Is your worth higher based on productivity, your number of converts? How many prophecies that I can give in the course of a year? I mean, whatever your measure is of productivity, that thing that you have direct purview over, do you feel better about yourself based on how high your productivity is? Could I submit to you that that probably is one of the most profound signs of being emotionally unhealthy? Because our worth in God was established long before you ever did anything. God made some decisions about you 
before you ever did anything, either good or bad. I'm sorry, but God can't love you any more than what he did for you at Calvary. He can't love you any more than choosing you before the foundations of the world. He chose you, but it wasn't on the basis of what you were going to do or produce. It was on the basis of you. He wanted you, not as some kind of machine to produce some kind of kingdom product. He wanted you as a son and as a daughter. But if our worth is tied to our productivity, let me say that this is a slow-acting poison. You know, there are some poisons that you can ingest that you have almost immediate effect from. There are certain poisons that will pretty much take you out fast. The thing about the poison of productivity is that it tastes a little good when you begin to first partake of it. And it has a little bit of a high. Come on. And it's like any other gateway drug. It's like, ooh, that feels good. I feel good about myself. If I feel good about me, then my wife must feel better about me. If she feels better about me, then certainly Jesus feels better. Ooh, let me have some more. And then the next thing you know, we find ourselves on the veritable hamster wheel of addiction. And we get addicted to the productivity because it, re it, re it releases a type of emotional and spiritual endorphin that somehow God must love me more based on what I'm doing. Oh, my goodness. And I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Tell your friends because that's what we're going to talk about next week. Amen?